This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Audio Dramatics on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's bi-monthly show about audio dramas that have been released on CD or MP3, and also sometimes broadcast on the radio. In today's programme, I'm looking at a pair of writers who are also sound designers, and coincidentally have both worked on dramas set in Sherwood Forest, one of which is a sci-fi drama called Osiris, about the discovery of a spaceship beneath the major oak, and the other a revisionist version of Robin Hood, called Hood, in which the Sheriff of Nottingham is the hero of the piece. Both Ian Meadows and Martin Johnson have also worked on adaptations of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. So in today's programme, I'm going to talk to both of these creators, who have worked on similar projects, about their differing approaches to creating audio drama, their interests in sound design, and their reasons for exploring legends of Sherwood Forest. In the first half of today's programme, I'm talking to Martin Johnson. Martin's early experience in creating sci-fi sound design was working on a number of Paul McGann Doctor Who episodes created by Big Finish, a prolific production company that also produced audio dramas based on the likes of Blake Seven, The Prisoner, and The Omega Factor. As well as Paul McGann's Doctor, Martin Johnson worked on plays starring David Warner's alternative third Doctor, Sylvester McCoy's seventh Doctor, and Colin Baker's sixth Doctor. Emboldened by this experience, he then created his own sci-fi series, Osiris, which features a collection of characters who, in amongst their domestic lives, find a buried spaceship in Sherwood Forest, and more recently worked on an adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which is entitled The Coming of the Martians. Wells's novel went out of copyright at the beginning of this year, so it's no surprise there are a variety of different adaptations doing the rounds. And in the second half of today's show, I'll be talking to Ian Meadows about the version he worked on, The Martian Invasion of Earth. The reason each of these versions isn't called The War of the Worlds is because Jeff Wayne, who produced the musical version of War of the Worlds, featuring David Essex and Richard Burton, holds the audio rights to that title. To give you a flavour of Martin Johnson's work, here's an extract from Osiris, just after lightning and thunder seems to have attacked the major oak in Sherwood Forest, and our protagonists go to investigate. Ladies and gentlemen, the park is now being closed to the public until further notice. Please make your way to the exits in an orderly manner. Thank you. Come on. What now? Jason, it's starting to rain. Where's your sense of adventure? Oh, for fuck. I'll get these new shoes messed up. Great. Now it's thundering. What's the bramble? That didn't sound like thunder to me. Felt like it came from below ground. Ah, it's your imagination. <laughs> okay. I felt that. Whoa! Ah! Ah! Oh! Gonna bruise. Fox! Fox! 
think so. Nothing broken. What's down there? Uh, I don't know. I can't see a thing. Hold on. Uh, I'll use the light on my phone. Uh, it, it looks like some sort of natural tunnel. The tremor must have caused the ceiling to crumble and give way. I didn't know there were any tunnels underneath Sherwood Forest. No, neither did I. Must be all that rainwater. What's that sound I can hear down there? I'm not sure. It's coming from the far end of the tunnel. Really strange, though. Ah, oh. oh, I can, I can see light. Well, maybe it's a way out. Hard to tell through all these roots. Doesn't look like daylight, though. So are you based near Nottingham then, thinking of the name of your company? Uh, yeah, I'm based just outside. It's about 12 miles uh, north of Nottingham uh, in the Sherwood Forest area, which ah. is where, the, where I got the name from. So your first kind of credit in audio was working on titles such as Big Finish's uh, unit box set, the Hammer Chillers audio plays released by Baffle Gap. How did you get into this field? It all started kind of by accident. I mean, I'm a big Doctor Who fan anyway, and I did my own version of the Doctor Who theme in a sort of Danny Elfman style and put it online. Uh, then a company down in Portsmouth um, asked me to do the music for two Dalek stage plays, and the second play, uh, Nick Briggs did the Dalek voices for the Dalek Master Plan play. And we got talking, and uh, it all sort of snowboarded from there, really. So mm. I ended up, uh, I mean, I've, you know, done bits and bobs here and there with college and stuff, but I've never really done anything full on. And yeah, that, I did my first audio drama, which I believe was Masters of War, mm -hmm. the Unbound Dot Who story. And yeah, that was quite a big learning curve for me. Amazing. I mean, it, it's <laughs> astonishing how the Doctor Who community is so welcoming for people from fandom. Because I believe the guy who did the opening credits and then later some um, FX work on Peter Capaldi's run as the Doctor, again, just put his version of the opening titles on YouTube and basically they gave him a job on the back of it. That's right. I mean, the, the Doctor Who fan base is huge. I mean, I, I can't think of anything other than probably Star Wars that has the same kind of you know fandom where the people that actually make the production actually get the, those people in and to help out or do any any kind of production work that's great you said it was a huge learning curve working on that first doctor who unbound did big finish at least give you the chance to kind of learn on the job as it were oh yes um obviously i, I could do music I, the, the thing with me is i can't read write music or play an instrument so Gosh. Uh, doing orchestral music is kind of sort of it's all done in my head so I'd sort of hum stuff into a tape recorder and then I get back home and, mm. and lay it all down like that and it's all my music is orchestral stuff so it's not exactly a few tracks it's many tracks but yeah it's getting into it was quite a big learning curve and just getting around the whole idea of editing multiple tracks was I think the hardest part of that. Mm. The sound is the sound design part. That's the easy part. I love going out, and the thing with me, I, I can't really stand sound libraries. I like going out and getting new sounds wherever I can, and I think that creates a better audio drama because there's there's a lot of 
drama, especially on TV, where you hear the same gate noise multiple <laughs> times in multiple dramas. That drives me crazy. Mm. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, I think whenever there's been a, a dramatised version, um, hopefully not in the way that it might send you mad, such as in that Toby Jones film, but a, yes. a dramatisation of when people make sound effects. It's all of the sort of uh, ideas of hitting watermelons with sh- sledgehammers and walking up and down in little boxes full of gravel. <laughs> but that still looks like great fun. It is. I remember the there was a uh, Doctor Who story I did with Big Finish called Hot House, and it was a Paul McGann story based around, uh, it's a Tom Baker story, oh, Seeds of Doom. Mm. And the effect on the story for Seeds of Doom, I had to recreate that effect um, for the pods and things like that. Mm. And um, I used, I think it was a grapefruit <laughs> and <laughs> some kind of kitchen appliance. I think it was a mixer of some sort, and I was just squishing it in my hands, and it was disgusting, and it was <laughs> lovely and it's i love doing stuff like that excellent so on the back of having worked on these various audio plays for big finish you set up your own company in order to bring out osiris yeah that was um sort of a testing run of what i wanted to get into which was producing more realistic audio drama that's more immersive you see i'm not trying to change the industry or anything like that but i find a lot of audio drama on radio quite they're more sort of to me they sound like plays with sound effects on top of it which are not necessarily realistic Mm. and I prefer to listen to something that sounds like I could be in that world and surrounded by what's happening Mm. and I find that a much more especially with something that's scary like the war of the worlds I like to have people surrounded by what they're listening to Um, so Osiris was pretty much a sort of testing ground for that to, to do something realistic, immersive and in surround sound. Mm. Well, and I guess also setting yourself the challenge of doing it in Dolby Surround brings an entirely oh new different kind of mixing sound that you wouldn't have previously done when it was just CD. Yes, that's that's been an entirely new, new learning curve for me. <laughs> um, because you've got, not only have you got multiple tracks that you normally would have with stereo, you've got four more extra tracks on top of that so rather than just left and right, you've got centre, two rear speakers and a subwoofer to deal with. Mm. It's not easy to do, especially when you're not used to mixing sort of film stuff. Yeah, because I guess as well, if you were to do a surround sound mix for a film, at least you have the visuals in front of you. So you have an idea, OK, this person is walking behind me uh, at this point or this ship is traveling left to right across the screen so you can sync it but if there are no visuals to match it up with it must be a more difficult process just kind of conceptualizing something from a written script yeah it's a lot more difficult with audio drama because you can't um unlike a film where most of the action is in the front of the where the, well where the screen is most of the dialogue comes out of the center speaker with audio drama people move around if say you've got a room and people are moving around the room mm. you don't want people in the back of the you don't want people talking in the back speakers if you can help it because a lot of people will still be listening in stereo in pro logic which is sort of it's not true surround it's sort of a matrixed version of surround sound and if they're only listening on headphones that gives a it still gives a surround sound effect but it won't be as it won't be quite as good as true surround sound so you've got all the all these little things to take into consideration when you're doing stuff like that Mm. so does that mean in a way you have to do three different mixes one for standard uh, stereo one for pro logic and then for people who also bought the uh, the dvd audio version uh well i've done this um i don't mix this as you would a film i think in, in film production they they do a stereo mix and then in the final mix they mix it all up to dolby 
surround okay. sound. I might, I might, I might be wrong. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> but what I do is um, I mix it in. Obviously, the uh, the studio recordings when we record actors, that's all in mono, so we don't have to worry about that too much. But with surround sound stuff, I asked the studios to just we we usually record say on dot two and stuff like that we record 44 kilohertz 16 bits but for war of the worlds uh we recorded in 96 kilohertz 24 bit so i've got a lot more room to play with the dynamics and then when it comes to doing the sound design and the music i'll do all that from scratch in surround sound Mm. so it I don't have to mess about with mixing everything in surround sound right at the end, which will take a hell of a lot of time. So your adaptation of The War of the Worlds has got a great cast, people like Colin Morgan, like Ronald Pickup, like Nigel Lindsay. In a way, did you feel, assuming that this is a project that you've been wanting to do for a while, did you feel that you needed to do Osiris first in order to basically have something that you could send to people and say, look, this is what I'm capable of in terms of my own independent drama? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean... The the idea for Osiris um, I had I've had since I was in college. So mm. I wanted to um, first when I first started everybody else productions. I thought I'm not going to go jump straight into the War of the Worlds mainly because of the copyright issue, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, which ran out at the end of 2016. So I had a I think it was two years before that ran out, and mm. I thought I'll use this story that I've got the idea for just do a test run and see how see how the quality is and how people take it and you know let it go from there mm. and it was nice as well to hear a story set in Sherwood Forest that didn't have Robin Hood in it for a change <laughs> yes I mean uh, <laughs> almost everything you hear about Sherwood Forest it's always about Robin Hood uh, there's a new film coming out as well indeed <laughs> <laughs> But as a local, are there all sorts of other kind of myths and legends set in Sherwood in and around the uh, Major Oak? Um, I mean, with the Major Oak, uh, nobody knows... That there are many theories about... I mean, it's, it is in the, dra- the drama for Osiris that I've written in to the story, but if you actually go and see the Major Oak, there are little boards around it um, telling you that they don't really know how it got so big. Mm. And... Um, Obviously, that that sort of bleeds into the myth of Robin Hood hiding in it and things like that. But, uh, yeah, so I've always had the idea that there's something happened, you know, many years ago. Uh, In my story, it just happened to be a spaceship buried underneath. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So you then moved on to War of the Worlds and renamed your company Sherwood. Uh, Mm. Osiris was... um, kind of launched via a kickstarter and so indeed was war of the worlds so i guess it's a way of funding audio that you found to be pretty successful yes uh osiris was funded by by kickstarter um obviously because i was building a, a new company mm. um and um osiris was like say it was sort of a basis to get the new company started but because it wasn't really a well-known production uh there were there wasn't that much interest. Um, we got really good reviews and everything, but mm. uh, we uh, decided not to continue with the uh, the episodes for that. And we're going to release episode two as soon as we can. Mm. And then uh, with the War of the Worlds, it was just a waiting game to you know waiting for the copyright to run out really. Mm. Um, but we uh, we still had issues with the uh, trademarks uh, with uh, Jeff Wayne's version, uh, and that that lasted. Uh, that lasted a few months, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Kickstarter's a, Kickstarter's a good 
platform for anyone who wants to start their own business. Um, and we decided to go the Kickstarter route for War of the Worlds again because it's a it's a well-known production and we knew that it would get a lot of interest on Kickstarter. Mm. And it's not been done before. So. Well, unfortunately, uh, though it then meant you've now ended up competing with Big Finish, who did their own version um, of War of the Worlds. Had you any idea that they were doing that as well or was it just an unfortunate coincidence? No. <laughs> uh, Nick, Nick, me and Nick are good friends. He didn't tell me that they were doing uh, H.G. Wells adaptations. I only found out after our Kickstarter put, uh, run ended, mm. um, which I, th- I thought, you know, it it was an obvious thing that they were going to do as soon as the copyright ended. Mm. And I, I am glad that they did a whole H.G. Wells run and I have listened to the uh, War of the Worlds uh, that Nick uh, wrote, and uh, yeah, it's it's quite good. <laughs> We've done something that no one else, even to this day, has done, and that is stay faithful to the original story, mm. like almost almost word for word and page for page. Okay. I mean, it's interesting that people haven't done that, particularly with the interest in steampunk that's been around over mm. the last few years. You know, the idea of actually having Victorians fighting Martians, you think, is so unique that it would actually interest people. Yes, it's it's quite bizarre because I mean, it's one of the it's one of the most well known uh, science fiction stories, and it's you know, it's some would say it's the grandfather of science fiction stories, and to not have a a decent faithful adaptation of that is uh, I'm mind blown that it's not been done before. Uh, <laughs> Previous versions, I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending, uh, but previous mm. versions have felt tempted on many occasions to add a coda where the Martians return in the 21st century. Did you have any urge to do that as well, or did you just want to be faithful to the original novel? I thought about it, <laughs> <laughs> um, because I, I did I did read about, um, I can't remember who it was, but someone's written a, a, a sequel mm. uh, for The War of the Worlds. And when I heard that, I thought, Shall we do? Shall we finish it? No, let's not. No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Nick Scavell, who wrote the uh, the adaptation, when I first met him and discussed doing it, um, I had three things that I wanted to get across, and that's be as faithful as you can to the original novel. Don't include narration hmm. because that has been done so many times, and the only reason people know the uh, the first few texts of the book is because it's it's been done by almost every adaptation it's mm. you know <laughs> um yes and uh, obviously uh, i i also asked him to do so many directions for sound design just so that i know where i'm going with it obviously i've read it i'm not i'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan of i'm a big fan of the original book as well and he is we, we, he reads it every year and I, i've read it read it um, so many times so. Mm. and the adaptation is directed by Lisa Bauman who's an accomplished mm. you know audio director and actress with mm. you sitting in your producer's chair and her sitting in her director's chair how does that work between you when you're in the studio when we're recording actors yeah yes well I've been lucky enough to go down for some recordings when I was working with Big Finish and see how everything comes together and how everything works 
Um, and I have worked with Lisa on a big Finnish story. I think it's uh, a Bernie F- Summerfield story called, mm-hmm. was it Glory Days or something? I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so we have worked together as a director and sound designer. Mm. Uh, but going from sound designer to producer, um, it's 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 a bit of a strange step to take for me because I didn't think I'd be doing that so soon. Um but uh, I wanted someone who um, who knows who I work as a sound designer and a composer. Mm. And I wanted someone who um, I trust as a director. And going down to the studio recording in London to record the actors, it was it's always a great experience. And uh, uh, Lisa is definitely the director for the job to do that. And I let her do her thing. Um, me and Nick were down there. Uh, listening in on the recording while it was happening and mm. um got, we we all have scripts in front of us um and if nick's there to just make sure that everything is historically accurate and people are saying names and things correctly and uh, i'm there just in case uh, i'm basically there as a sound designer mm. um making sure that i've got everything that i need uh, things like um there's a lot of you know breathy stuff in this audio drama there's a scene where in the novel the first fighting machine that the narrator uh, we've called him George in the script but he isn't actually named in the actual audio drama um, which is played by Colin Morgan Mm. so when the fighting machine first walks over Colin Morgan uh, most of the second half of that scene is him just breathing Mm. Um, so I needed to make sure I've got enough enough uh, of him breathing to uh you know to finish the scene so i'm I'm there just to make sure i've got enough things like that okay how did you get colin um in the lead that's all lisa um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah she's she's a like i say she's a brilliant director and a casting uh person and um he was on a list of actors we wanted and he was he was pretty much the first person we thought about really hmm. um as soon as i uh saw colin morgan as a as a potential i jumped on it because um i've watched merling since it was since it started on bbc one and i'm a i'm a good fan of humans and uh other things he's done so yeah to get colin was um amazing Mm. and i guess also um the responsibility you have working uh, running sherwood sound is you're not only producing you're not only mixing the sound not only considering you know all the aspects of making a production you're commissioning art for the package you're thinking about how the various cd uh, usb versions are going to look as packages so it's a far more holistic role than you might if you were just sort of doing freelance work for somewhere like big finish yes um when i've changed the company name to shield sound studios um and decided to do something that was so well known I didn't realise how much work I'd be doing <laughs> on yeah. the production. This, The Coming of the Martians, which is what we've called it because of uh, trademark reasons, mm. was supposed to come out last year. But um, not only do I have to do sound design, music, uh, producer stuff, uh, speak to Lisa about um, you know edits and different takes and all that kind of stuff, um, I've got to do the... Like you say, I've got to do the CD covers, I've got to do the CDs, I've got to manufacture the CD. Well, not me personally, but you know, I've got to send them off. <laughs> um, I've got to do the music, the sound design, um, all the admin that comes with uh, ordering and pre-ordering and the website stuff. Um, 
what else? I've got to uh, get the uh, all the files onto the USB drive and send them off to be produced. Then um, I've got to box them, package them. The USB stuff is is coming from different companies, so that's all got to be packaged all separately and put together. Yeah. Um, yes, and, uh, and then of course I've I've got another job in uh, somewhere else doing something not quite as exciting <laughs> so it's um yes there have been reasons for the delays <laughs> i wouldn't have suggested otherwise <laughs> but you know obviously you know having to produce a cloth bound usb uh cover that looks like a hardback book you know means you've yes. really thought about you know how this could be a nice package but at the same time you're making a rod for your own back yes that's right i mean the, the reason that it's uh, priced the way it is is because the uh, the usb cover book uses real linen and it's it is quite an expensive product so um i wanted that feeling of uh you know a luxury item mm. um packaged in a, a black box with it with its own uh booklet um i thought that was a good thing to uh, give people mm. because more and more people are listening to audio now and i think you know i'd like to think they really enjoy the immersive experience does it surprise you that surround sound isn't used more often in these kind of productions i mean i could maybe name three off the top of my head because i think uh, dirk mags mixed the third series of hitchhikers into uh, surround sound and then a couple of halloweens ago uh, radio 4 did adaptations of the ring and the stone tape in 3d audio and that's about it do you think there would be more i think there should be mm. um see i think the very first audio drama that i ever heard and uh this is a dirk mags, mags production again um was independence day uk on radio one ah. and uh i still have the cassette of that and that <laughs> was in dolby surround ah. uh and um, I don't know why this is a thing, but um, I think with modern technology, films and stuff, uh, they're, they're advancing quite rapidly now. We've got 4K picture mm. in in the home. We've got surround sound. In in cinemas, we've got Dolby Atmos, which is, which uses so many speakers I can't even count. <laughs> um, <laughs> why is um, radio drama and audio drama still only using stereo mm. when you could be listening to it in surround sound or at least sort of um i wouldn't say binaural is a see with binaural audio you can't really fake it with plugins you have to have um there's a microphone head thing mm. that records binaural binaural audio and without that it it will never sound like a true 3d thing mm. um so you can use plugins and everything but uh, it will never sound like surround sounds but um using something like dolby digital or dolby pro logic which is what is going to be on the cd um even though it's a stereo signal you can still listen to it on a surround sound system if you've got a home theater and if you listen to it on a cd player or, or cd player <laughs> or mp3 player um you can still listen it, listen to it in stereo but you still have those surround effects in your headphones so mm. that's that's one way of doing it Nice. And when you finished uh, packaging and sending out all of these copies of The War of the Worlds, when do you think Osiris Episode 2 might be coming out? Uh, I'm going to say... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to try and get it out before the end of the year. Because okay. um, it is pretty much all mixed together. Uh, it's just a case of editing what we've done and uh, getting it out there. 
Mm. And uh, War of the Worlds is due for release at the end of this month. We've just got to do the uh, final mix, which will take uh, maybe a week or two on uh, War of the Worlds. So, uh, yeah, it's all coming together nicely now. Awesome. And then looking forward to the future, uh, Osiris Episode 3 and an adaptation of another classic? <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, I've been thinking about doing um, Journeys to the Centre of the Earth. Ah. Um, however, I do have plans that are bigger than that, and it involves a licensing deal, but I can't uh, say anything about it at the minute. Okay. Well, so. look forward to hearing more. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you too. The first episode of Osiris, written by Martin Johnson, is available now from his website, SherwoodSoundStudios.com. And his adaptation of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, entitled The Coming of the Martians, will be available on May the 31st from SherwoodSoundStudios.com. To give you a flavour of The Coming of the Martians, starring Colin Morgan as the protagonist, here's an extract from the production. You've been gone ages. Yes, sorry. I wanted to speak to those soldiers again. They're trying to communicate with them. Flag signals. That's what Ogilvy tried. Oh, they've surrounded them. A few shells and that will be it. Seems a bit wrong. They do seem very helpless in that pit of theirs. Nothing in here at all. No news is good news, I suppose. Shh! What? Shh! Oh, God! Stay here! Can't stay here. Where should we go? Come on. What news? They're crawling out in something like a dish cover. Everyone out! Everyone out! Where should we go? Leatherhead. What? I'll get the dog cart from the spotted dog. We'll drive to Leatherhead. And we can stay with my cousins there. But what about... Don't look back. Just don't look back. You're listening to Audio Dramatics on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch. And if you're just joining us, the clip you've just heard was from Sherwood Sound Studios' adaptation of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, In contrast, my next guest, Ian Meadows, also worked on an adaptation of The War of the Worlds entitled The Martian Invasion of Earth. And to let you compare and contrast the two versions, here's Big Finish Productions, adaptation of a similar scene. Giddy up there! Uh, Did you see the other one come down? Although? There was another shooting star in the night! Ogilvy said there'd be others. Yes. Yes, he did, but uh, the army's here now. But do the army have a heat ray? (laughs) Oh, my God. It's coming from the common. I knew they wouldn't capture them. 
They must be killing the Martians. We'll be able to see something from my study. Come on. So much smoke. That heat ray again. Yes. Yes. They got the church. Oh, I saw it go. Cut right in two. Oh, my Lord. Did you see it? Yes. Meg, yes, I, I think I did. But the soldiers, the, the army will stop them. <sighs> Herbert? Herbert, what do you think's happening out there? I... I saw something. Did you? What, sir? I... I... Herbert? What did you see? I'm not sure. It caught the light from a metal, I think, like armour. Armour? I didn't see it. Me neither. Only for a moment. It was... It was... Herbert! My dear, you must pack a bag. You too, Meg. What? But... Be waiting at the door when I return. Return? But I... Be ready, both of you. Coming up next is my interview with Ian Meadows, who is in charge of the sound effects for the Martian invasion of Earth, and we'll be talking about his creation of soundscapes for other big Finnish productions, including The Prisoner and Atta Girl, as well as his revisionist version of Robin Hood, entitled Hood, starring Lee Ingleby, which recasts the Sheriff of Nottingham as the hero of the saga. So I was looking up your biography online and it said that prior to making Hood you had 20 years of experience in local and national radio um, but couldn't get any more details than that. Was any of it on uh, drama? Uh, no, really. I mean, I, um, I, I've i always been a disc jockey. Ah. Um, so I, I started out in, in local radio. I think it's back in about, yeah, 1990. Well, um, I first did my first radio gig in sort of 1988 uh, university. And then by 1993, I was doing a breakfast show. And uh, from mm. there on, I kind of worked my way up the ranks and, you know, ended up doing things like um, Capital South Coast and talk sport. Um, but all that time, I think when I was at Spire in Salisbury, the first, the first raid, well, I suppose you could call it the first venture into radio drama was, was there where mm. I did um, a science fiction thing that I actually produced and ran on my my morning show. So that's, mm. uh, but not really. I think sort of drifted into it really because I mean I'd always listened to audio drama and and you know uh, in my spare time would mess around in studios doing silly voices like Kenny Everett or something and putting sound effects in and and uh, so I suppose it, it it spawned from there really. Mm. What was the sci-fi thing that you did for Spire? Uh, that was, well, I can give you, I know these characters intimately. It's uh, <laughs> sad, isn't it? Cantillion Lace was the name of the hero. And it was uh, a thing called For the Greater Good. And it was a, a dystopian future. Uh, and nowadays, the idea of um, like a, a neural clone is is fairly well established but mm. i don't know whether anybody had done it back then this is we're talking about 94 95 and it was the idea that security operatives in the future would have um chips which would artificial intelligence which would learn how to to, to mimic the the person 
that they were implanted into and they they would take on a, a sort of a, a, a copy of their personality hmm. and that when the agent was was killed that could be transferred into the central security net so that other agents could then come along and consult them so an investigation would never die leads would never you know you could interact with this thing and and then what happens is because there's this vast conspiracy they actually take the chip and implant it into a recently deceased person Mm. so he's got about 72 hours to solve this this case um, before the body finally gives out. So they assign him a nursemaid, uh, yeah, another agent, and together they go off on this mad adventure. Um, I've, often, I've often thought about actually um, polishing the script and and redoing it in mm. some form. Uh, and maybe I will, who knows? Yeah, maybe well, particularly after things like um, Altered Carbon and the Star Trek homage in Black Mirror, both of which kind of deal with the same concept. Yeah, but it's. I think because um, it's unfortunate, really, because you know, TV will come along, and TV obviously, because of its nature, has um, a broader reach, and so it, you know, in some ways, it might be derivative now, and people might mm. just say, "Oh, well, you've copied the idea," and there's no way that you can really sort of say, "No, I didn't. I wrote this back <laughs> in 1994," because you know, people aren't really interested. So, I mean, if I did it, I'd be doing it for my own yeah. personal satisfaction, I think, rather than. You know, to uh, to astound the world with anything <laughs> new, because I think you know these ideas inevitably they do get done to death, mm. don't they? I think one way or another. Well, like when the film of uh, John Carter of Mars came out, everyone thought it was really derivative, but it was because everyone else had ripped off the original novel in the years in between. Well, that's that, yeah, and that's the sad thing, isn't it? Really, because if you're the well, if if you're there first in in one form or another. I think you feel a little bit miffed, but, you know, what can you do? You just <laughs> go away and think of something new, something new and exciting. Mm. So, But, uh, you know, it was there. It was done. Nice. But talking of uh, an interesting new approach to a classic character, you created Hood with Lee Ingleby, which I, I thought was a fascinating idea at the risk of spoiling it, but you do kind of make the point apparent early in the first episode. It's a series where the Sheriff of Nottingham is pretty much the hero of a Robin Hood drama. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that all started because I think we were having a conversation one day. I think I was off to the, um, uh, I think the, the radio festival in Manchester, this big sort of, well, they used to, I don't know if they still do, but a big radio conference. And I got sort of musing as to why the Sheriff of Nottingham could never catch <laughs> Robin Hood. Because if you think about it, if you've got all the, um, the organs of state at your disposal, one man, I mean, despite the fact that the forest in those days was very big, Sherwood or Barnsdale, it, it's, you're still going to be able to catch your quarry, I think. I mean, there would still be people who would be willing to, uh, to turn him in for a, you know, a shilling or two or <laughs> you know, whatever currency they, they were using. Um, and so I wondered about the relationship between the sheriff and Robin Hood and maybe what if the sheriff was actually Robin Hood? What if he creates this this character? Mm. Um, and so that, that's kind of where it came from. But there's also other kind of uh, ideas about duplicity and characters not being who you expect them to be throughout the series. For example, Marion uh, sets uh, the sheriff on his journey of becoming a hero when actually she doesn't fancy him at all. And so it's a misunderstanding between the two. 
Oh, it's a misunderstanding on his part. Yeah. It's not on hers. I mean, she's, Marion is, uh, I mean, let's make no bones about it. Marion's a murderess. <laughs> um, you know, she's a downright nasty piece of work. But not bec- not just because she's a nasty b- piece of work, but, but she's a woman that has to survive in a man's world. And I think because of where she comes from, because of her experiences, she has learned that, you know, this is this is the way to survive. I mean, the King's Court was... Uh, in some ways, a bit like the mafia, mm. you know, there's always somebody looking to take you out, and and for uh, uh, and for a woman, uh, you 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 have to be a strong type to survive in that environment. And I don't I don't think I don't think any of the characters are evil for the sake of evil. They might mm. do evil things, but it's it, it's about survival. And um, yeah, Marion was using the sheriff. Um, but more for him, you might say. Mm. Uh, but you know, in, in one way or another, it, it, it sort of it, it gets things started. I mean, she's she's absolutely convinced she's going to send him off to his death. <laughs> yeah, which isn't the noblest of uh, reasons for getting anyone to do anything. But also, I mean, her as a character as well. I don't want to, uh, you know, I'm hoping that people will listen to this interview and buy Hood, so I don't want to uh, to spoil it any further. But her identity as well is not what we expect it to be, as it turns out. <laughs> No, and, and nobody is quite is quite what they seem. Mm. Uh, in uh, well, apart maybe from the outlaw. I mean, well, even the outlaws, I suppose. I mean, yeah. I mean, John and Will. I mean, their, their backstories are kind of interesting. Mm. Um, Marion, yeah, but where she's come from. I mean, it's all about survival. I mean, she's learned how to survive. She's a clever woman, Marion. Mm. You know, she's she manipulates things, and you know, she gets. Uh, she gets things done uh, to suit her, mm. which is uh, which is not always the way for for female characters. But she's, I mean, she's great. I loved, you know, I loved her. I thought mm. she was, yeah, as I say, not evil for the sake of evil. But I mean, she does do evil things. Um, but there again, don't they all? I mean, even you know, even the sheriff, even Philip de Nicolay, who is, you know, ostensibly the hero. I mean, even he is uh, not above doing things which um, I suppose at worst might be seen as, as evil, mm. at best might be seen as ambiguous. Mm. So, yeah. So you had the idea of doing this uh, revisionist version of Robin Hood. From that point on, you obviously had to create a company, Spiteful Puppet, you had to arrange a cast, you had to write the script. Was that all a, a fairly easy process or were there some bumps along the way? Um, I think at the time... I mean, there were some bumps afterwards. I think at the time it was it was. I think the most difficult thing was was writing the script, um, because it it went through a few incarnations, a few drafts before I got to a place where we were ready to go into the studio. And I always thought, you know, if you're going to do this and you've got to, before you go anywhere near a studio, you have to have a cracking script. I mean, especially if nobody really knows who you are. Mm. And that was the case at the time, you know, when Spiteful Puppet was created, people were like, what? Spiteful what? (laughs) You know, they didn't, they didn't know who we were. I mean, to a degree, they weren't interested. I mean, the BBC, uh, we tried knocking on the, on their door and, and they were, well, you know, frankly, we don't know who you are. And, and justifiably so, I, I suppose. And they're also saying, you know, and, and, and you're a commercial radio disc jockey. No. <laughs> so, um, you know, once we had the script and, and a few people had read it and said, oh, this is, this is good, uh, the rest sort of fell into place. Um, I mean, the casting process, it was all a, it's all a, a learning curve. But, I mean, it's not 
it's not beyond the wit of man mm. or woman or beast, maybe, <laughs> to um, to actually go out and, and and do it. So, you know, setting up the company and uh, getting the cast together and, um, uh, you know, booking the studio and doing all that. I mean, it, I think people can overcomplicate these things as well. Mm. I think if you assume that it's going to be, I'll qualify this, relatively straightforward, <laughs> Then I think, then I think it will be. I think if you overthink it too much, and I think that's what a lot of people, because a lot of people told Matt and myself when we were starting Spiteful Puppet, they they were like horrified. They were like, "What are you doing? You can't do drama," <laughs> you know. And and we were like, "Yeah, we can." She's just, it's easy. I suppose maybe because we had a radio background as well, mm. um, we kind of knew what we were, what we were about. So, yeah. Hmm. The one, you know, in that initial, I think because we tried not to overcomplicate it, it was relative. I say relatively straightforward. I mean, I'm probably looking at it through rose-tinted spectacles <laughs> to a degree, but hmm. I seem to, I seem to remember that it wasn't as difficult as some people thought it would be. Hmm. Well, and even I think it was five years ago the first CD came out. Looking at the kind of landscape, for a better word, um, of audio drama then. Big Finish had obviously been doing stuff for a number of years already at that point, and there were various mm. other companies like Magic Bullet and the people who did Space 1899 and other companies. So I guess you must have realised that there was uh, a market for original drama that was being released on CD, both via the internet and in specialist shops. Yeah, I think we were definitely aware that there was a market, whether we would um, whether we would actually be able to crack that market was was a, a different thing because you know we, we were coming from it from the point of view of creatives yeah. and normally when you work in a radio station for example you have people who deal with marketing and you have people who deal with um you know all the, the commercial side of things so uh that was um yeah that was a bit of a learning curve um <laughs> you know learning how to sort of market it i mean doing social media and what have you to a degree is is uh, something that anybody can do, but you've you've got to sort of somehow get traction. Um, so you know, it was a case of trying to find not just selling it via a website. It was trying to find you know other other places we could put it. Like for instance, we went to Nottingham Castle, and we mm. went to Newstead Abbey, and we you know the Robin Hood shop in in Sherwood Forest, and got some stocked there and. So, you know, it was a question of, of slowly building it, really. And I think then when it got nominated at the BBC Audio Awards, I think then people started to sort of sit up and, and perhaps take notice. And, and you know, it, it, it helps. I mean, you know, if you if you get any kind of critical recognition like that, it, it all helps. But I'd say that was kind of the hardest, really. Yeah. But, yeah. But, I mean, if, if the others had done it, then why not us, you know? Well, indeed. But I, I guess, um, you know, like you said, you had to go to the, the Robin Hood shop because unlike something like Doctor Who or Blake Seven, I guess there aren't that many Robin Hood conventions <laughs> where you could sell merchandise to fans. Um, no, uh, no. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, um, my mate Barnaby's just done uh, Hooded Man mm. 3 this weekend. So he's just done a, a Robin of Sherwood 
um, convention. But I mean, yeah, I didn't really know about <laughs> not having been that kind of fan. Mm. Um, I, you know, I didn't really know about that sort of convention. And you're quite right. There isn't sort of a, a Robin Hood convention, but there are Robin Hood forums. OK. And so we were able to sort of go on to Robin Hood forums. And uh, I eventually stopped, though, because I got into um, an almighty ruckus with with somebody who was you know dead set against what we were doing and hmm. dead set against this that and the other and in the end you think oh you know it's you're just sucking the fun out of it because he was convinced that robin hood was a real person <laughs> okay. and that we were you know so uh yeah i mean there are ways and means of, of, of doing it but i think if you the thing about robin hood as well is that it's it's something that everybody thinks they know mm. so it's both a strength and a weakness because, you know, if you say Robin Hood, people are like, oh, right. But then they think they know the story and so they don't really want to, uh, you know, invest or or go any further. Mm. Um, and and even then, sometimes if they are Robin Hood fans, they still might think, well, this is not. I mean, I did have somebody come up to me once and say, I can't get on with this, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, well, you know, fine. OK, but. You know, it's 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 another it's another version. It's another take. And we wanted to do something that would that, you know, would turn things on on their head. Mm. So you said that when you first approached the BBC, they gave you short shrift. But then was it after the series won an audio award that you were able to get it on four extra? Yes, that's uh, I think I think after we'd got after we'd got. After it got a nomination, after Noble mm. Secrets was nominated, I think we were able to, because we met a few BBC people, obviously, um, and so we were able to send it off. And I think they said to us, well, Noble Secrets is great, but, you know, we really need some kind of resolution. <laughs> um, I always thought that Noble Secrets could stand on its own because you could you could imagine what happened next. Mm. But they said they'd like a series. So, um, and by that stage, you know, we, you know, the story was there in place. So we, we were, we were doing it anyway. And then when I think it, you know, it was the scribe of Sherwood which won the uh, the award, mm. um, then they came to us and said, right, well, um, if you've got it and you make it, we'll broadcast it. Hmm. So, you know, we were doing that anyway. So, uh, hmm. so, it, so it it fell into place really. And I think from memory, the BBC afterwards said that they were very happy with the response because it, it, it was constant. I think it was constantly in the top 10 of shows that people wanted to cash, catch up with on mm. the, uh, the radio iPlayer. So that was uh, that was quite gratifying. Mm. Yeah. And eventually you made eight episodes in total, which run to about seven hours. Was that as many as you felt the format could kind of stand up to? I mean, I would have quite happily listened to more. You know? Well, yeah, I, I think it was, it was what, four feature-length episodes? So uh, I think three feature-length and then the Scribe of Sherwood, although it's... It's an hour. Yeah. It's two half hours, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So, um, well, we had a definite story up for it. Mm. Um, you know, a, a to Z. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also it comes down to, to to money as well because it it does it does cost a lot to make these things. Um, and by that stage as well, Lee was getting because I think we got him at just the right time because hmm. I mean Lee is huge now and rightly so because he's he's brilliant and he was great in the studio, just a real gent, you know, and uh, and led the cast. Um, you know, we had a lot of fun. Um, there are other stories. I do have other stories, but um, obviously because of 
complex rights issues subsequently, um, you know, they'll be in my head. That's that's the place oh. where they'll live. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's that. I mean, that's always the thing, isn't it? I mean, you always get into <laughs> into situations where um, th- th- I think the creativity can become bogged down by uh, real life factors. But I mean, certainly for the initial. We did, yeah. There were. It was definitely a story arc there, um, but there were a couple of places that I did leave doors open or slightly ajar, so that you know, if if there was ever the opportunity, uh, one could go back in mm. to the legend. Yeah. Okay. And then after uh, Hood being broadcast and uh, you winning the being nominated for the award, you've subsequently become a sound designer for Big Finish. I guess, again, being on the BBC must have opened additional doors. Uh, I think that happened. I think the sound design thing was happening before, as as, as it was going on to the BBC, I think. Mm. I mean, I think it was certainly it was the it was the award that kind of opened that door because, I mean, Nick and I had been, I like to say, flirting on email. Mm. And then after we won the award, Nick did drop me a line. And said, "Oh, well done!" <laughs> and I've just because we did send them a copy of Noble Secrets, and he said, "I've just listened to some of Noble Secrets, and do you want to have a chat?" Um, so uh, we did, and the first thing Nick was talking to me about was the uh, was the prisoner, mm. which I don't think anybody else knew about then. And he said, "You know, how do you feel about maybe doing some sound design on that?" And as I am a huge fan of the prisoner. I mean, I was like, well, yep, let me bite your hand off right there, you know, because it's, yeah, what a dream job to have, you know, your first, your first thing for Big Finish mm. is like something that you're a huge fan of and, and, and the opportunity to recreate and, uh, you know, to reboot that world. And, and Nick's scripts are just amazing, brilliant storytelling. I mean, I have to say that to a degree, actually, his version has kind of superseded McGowan's even for me. I do, I I do really, I love Mark's performance as six. I mean, you know, they'll always, I mean, obviously I'm always going to love McGowan's and, you know, you put the TV on, you put a DVD and you start watching it and, you know, you're into it. But, but Nick's is, um, it's, I want to know where he's going to take it, you Mm. know, because he's already subverted everybody's expectation um so it's i mean it's just a joy really Mm. so yeah it was it was hood and it was the award that opened the door really Mm. and i guess all of these productions bring very different challenges in terms of sound design with something like hood you need it to be you know reasonably medieval and not take you out of your seat for any sounds feeling kind of anachronistic with the prisoner you're going to want a certain fidelity to that 1960s spy fi kind of aesthetic and then indeed the other projects you've worked on for big finish the hg wells adaptations doctor who and so on they all require a different kind of ambient sound to to bring the listener into that world yeah um I mean, if if you're looking at, at something which is, you know, rooted in, in medievalism, you've got to, uh, I mean, to a degree, we're quite lucky because, of course, we think we know what everything sounds like because we've seen so many films. But you've got to remain true to that. Um, and you're right, it's very much grounded in the real world. So you've got to be mindful of that. Yeah. And, and you, it's very easy to actually to, to bring people out of a situation. And, and I wanted it to sound like they... They were actually there. 
Um, and I'm happy to say I think we did we did do a, a, a good job with with Hood. Mm. But you're right. I mean, with with science fiction, with science fiction, of course, um, who knows what a Martian fighting machine actually <laughs> sounds like or, you know, the pod crashing. So you can't just get these effects off the shelf. So you have to make them. I remember there was uh, there was um, in the Living in Harmony script, there was a travel tube and I, I sort of knew the sound I wanted. And I was thinking, how am I going to get that? And so that was a, an interesting morning of playing around with the Hoover and then <laughs> just manipulating sounds and then recreating something like Rover. I mean, that's um, when you kind of break down how they constructed it back in the day, that makes it slightly easier to know the, the, you know, the ingredients. But it's, it's like any recipe, isn't it? I mean, two people could have the same ingredients and come up with a different taste. And so it was important to, you know, to get as close as possible. Mm. And it is, you know, is, it, yeah, sound design is an interesting thing because, you know, you're creating, you're warping, you're messing around with sound, you know, making composites to, to produce these, these wonderful in, environments, you know, that, that, uh, that writers come up with. So, yeah, mm. it, it, you know, it takes a long time as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and doing um, the Martian invasion of Earth, you were the first out of the traps, as it were, because by the end of this month, I think there'll be three different new adaptations that you can buy on CD. Uh, oh, well, the, the Big Finish version, Martin Johnson's version, and the BBC broadcast one a few months ago, which is now coming out on CD as well. So. Oh. Right, right. Do you, do you worry uh, yeah. about that at all? That people will compare and contrast? You know, um, I don't think you can worry about it really. I mean, I read a, a review of it was lovely actually. It was a very mm. kind review about uh, War of the Worlds and the sound design. And I think the chap who, who wrote it was saying there must have been some trepidation. And I was thinking, <laughs> I didn't really think about it. I just thought, how am I going to do this? Let's just get on with it. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I don't think you can really worry about you do your head in if you if you worried about what other people were doing i think Mm. uh, yeah i'm yes i'm aware of one i didn't know about the bbc one when they did it Mm. um simply because i probably had my head buried in you know in other sound productions yeah uh, yeah i I don't think you can i think you just got to do the best job that you can Mm. and and then if you know if people like it fantastic if they don't there's not really much you can do about that is there <laughs> you know you just you just i think you just you, you just got to do it i mean and each and every, i mean there's space for all you know adaptations if somebody doesn't like one maybe they'll like another but i, I don't think you can get too precious about these things mm. because at the end of the day they're supposed to be entertainment and that's i think some people sometimes forget that yeah <laughs> uh <laughs> so what, what you know what can i say i mean I think at least one of them I will probably have a listen to, hmm. not the BBC one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, that's not because I don't love the BBC, but it's uh, because, yeah. But the other one, I think, um, yeah, because I've seen little snippets of that on YouTube. Hmm. So, uh, what do you think it is about the War of the Worlds that proves so popular? Because it's not as if there are three rival versions of the Invisible Man or the Time Machine out there. <laughs> well, I think it's one of Wells' best known. Uh, stories Mm. and I think it's uh, it's still incredibly relevant actually because you can always pitch it against things which are happening Mm. Um, and I think you you know the idea of invasion I mean it's it's horrifying Mm. anyway 
And it seems to be, you know, every other week you turn on the TV or the, listen to the radio and there's news about, you know, somebody's invading somebody else. Um, so, you know, it's always a sort of relevant story. And it's, I think it's, I mean, it's on a superficial level, but maybe it's not so superficial. There's always this fascination, I think, with, with alien life and what's out there. And Mars in particular has always held... You know, if you, if you, I mean, even going back to things like Holst the Planets, you know, and, mm. and Mars, you know, it's a, it's a very strong, powerful theme, you know, the god of war. Um, but I think, you know, uh, politically, uh, it, it's, I think it's an incredibly interesting story because there's so many, there's, there's so many events in life that you can, you can line up against War of the Worlds, really. Mm. Um, so, and I think it, I think there's a relatability there as well. Plus, it's just a good adventure story, isn't it? I mean, if mm. you want to come down to it at the end of the day, if you're looking for entertainment, um, it's that lovely thing where you can go and be scared <laughs> and then think, yeah, that's all right. It didn't happen. It's just it's just a bit of entertainment, you know. Mm. Um, I, I think, it, you know, things like that will always be ripe, you know. It's like we all love a good shark movie, don't we? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Yes. I just saw the trailer for uh, The Meg with Jason Stratham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that just, well, that, that just turns me on. I'm thinking <laughs> like giant shark, you know, I want to go and see that, you know. And then going forward, looking at the Big Finish website, you've got um, a Torchwood One box set coming out in July and then presumably further projects to come after that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm working. I'm, funnily enough, just before we were talking, I was just working on some revisions to the sound design for Torchwood one mm. um and then i guess it's up to big finish really mm. um i mean before that i was i was working on at a girl mm. so um you know that uh, i'd like to think that if they if they do another series of that and i hope they do that i might get a, another shot at doing that because that was um I mean, that was, again, that was amazing, A, because of the sound design, you know, the fact that you're doing 1940s World War Two, you know, playing around with Spitfires, and that's always a gorgeous sound. But because, you know, it was female writers, it was female-led, it was just great drama, and it was a, you know, a different way of, of looking at things. You know, the, you know, the way that the, the female characters were written was fantastic. So who knows? I mean, it's really down to big finish. I can't, I mm. can't ever... I can't ever say I, I serve at their pleasure. Um, but they, you know, they're great people. They really are. I mean, David Richardson is just, and, and Nick, you know, they're two of the loveliest human beings on, on the face of the planet. And I know everybody says that, but it, it's genuinely true. Mm. You know, um, you know, you won't meet nicer people. In fact, they're all good. I mean, Barnaby, um, who's the director of uh, Tortured One, I mean, he's such a good director. Actually, when you, you know, when you get the, the session stuff through and the stuff that he's covered in the studio, it's, it's just brilliant. Um, so, and it's a joy, really. Um, I, you know, I can't, I can't say anything other than it is joy. They're lovely, lovely people. And then are you itching to do your own production again at some point, whether it's the digital doppelgangers or something else? Yeah, well, never say never. Mm. Um, in fact... I, well, actually, Nick's already said this, so I think I'm okay to repeat it. But I, ha I have actually written some scripts for Charlotte Pollard, oh, Series okay. 3. Hmm. So, I mean, I don't – it's a sort of co-writing thing between myself and, and, and Nick, and Nick has sort of said it on the Big Finish podcast. Hmm. Um, so 
Um, when that will go into the studio, I've no idea. Um, and I know Nick's got to sort of um, add his magic to the scripts. So, but yeah, I would. I think I'd probably like to do some more writing at some point. I have just written something for Spiteful Puppet and Robin of Sherwood adaptations oh. that they're doing. Um, and I don't know how much I can say, <laughs> but yeah, I've written. I've written something. For in fact, I've written three scripts now. I think I did. I've done the Blood That Binds, Templar's Promise, and um, an episode called What Was Lost. Um, mm. And I, I don't think I can really say too much about it. But okay. you know, so so I am writing, and I think I'd like to continue writing. Mm. So possibly, mm. nice. I think that's the answer. <laughs> and doing. Uh... Robin of Sherwood scripts, did you find that you had to kind of turn off the hood version in your brain to engage with the Robin of Sherwood version? I think it was it was actually quite easy really because mm. I've been I've been brought up I suppose Robin of Sherwood was my first proper Robin Hood. Mm. I mean I have vague memories of Errol Flynn running around in tights. <laughs> uh, and I know a lot of people go, Well, that's just a fantastic perversion. And it <laughs> never did anything for me because I think, you know, the grittiness and you know the the liveliness of of the the Parade and Connery versions, mm. um, and Richard was Richard Carpenter was such a great writer. Mm. You know, he really he really nailed it. So, and I think if you can buy into that, um, and you know the show so well, it becomes reasonably easy. I mean, my my version was a, a lot more duplicitous. I mean, everybody mm. you never really knew what was going to happen in hood and a lot of people have said to me although well, you know there were so many twists and turns and and surprises and i you know and i liked that you know i, I do like that machiavellian aspect to it and that darker edge but with robin of sherwood i mean it's a bit more clear-cut you know you've got you know the good guys the bad guys uh the bad guys get some good lines but so do the good guys because you know there's the banter and we're rooting for them and you know i think if you if you bear that in mind and then you take into account you've got a little bit of mysticism and sword and sorcery which wasn't present in hood at all mm. you know i think the ingredients are all there so i i personally i mean other people <laughs> and this is the thing isn't it i mean i didn't find it a stretch but other people might say that i did okay you know? <laughs> so because you can never when people read your stuff you know you just never know how people are going to react and some people will love it some people will hate it but i think you can't you can't really beat yourself up and dwell on that too much martin johnson's revisionist version of robin hood entitled hood with lee ingleby is available on cd and mp3 download from spitefulpuppet.com Spiteful Puppet, under the aegis of their new executive producer, Barnaby Eaton-Jones, are also responsible for an audio version of Robin of Sherwood, reuniting the original cast of the TV series. Their first full-cast audio, Knights of the Apocalypse, is available now, as well as various readings by members of the original cast, including The Blood That Binds, written by Ian Meadows, and narrated by Nicholas Grace, who played the Sheriff of Nottingham, and The Templar's Promise, narrated by Phil Rose, who played Friar Tuck. You can also buy audio plays released by Big Finish Productions that Ian has created sound effects for, including The Prisoner, Atta Girl, and The Martian Invasion of Earth, by going to bigfinish.com. And if you're interested in the output of Big Finish, then you can listen to previous episodes of Audio Dramatics, 
where I speak to actress and director Lisa Bowerman, who is a prolific member of Big Finish, appearing in such series as Jago and Lightfoot and Bernie Summerfield, as well as various Doctor Who dramas. Also, in the most recent episode of Audio Dramatics, I'm talking to Dirk Maggs, the audio director of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on Radio 4, and various other immersive sound experiences. And this episode, along with others where I'm interviewing the likes of Colin Baker and Katie Manning, can be found on my website, www.panelborders.wordpress.com. Audio Dramatics was introduced, edited, and recorded by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. To end today's episode, you'll hear the beginning of Ian Meadows' serial Hood, in which Lee Engleby, playing the Sheriff of Nottingham, is beset by rogues in Sherwood Forest. Thanks for listening. Hold him. Time to slice you up, boy. Careful! Don't kill him. If you do... There's no humiliation, and we can't have that, eh, Henri? If you say so. For my part, I just want the money. In that case, let us end it. Thomas, please. Think about what you're doing. Think about what I'm doing. <laughs> Why, my Lord de Nicolet, I have sort of nothing else. Why, Thomas? We were friends. Were we? And there was I, thinking that you were a means to an end. On the ground. After all you have given me, maybe I should give you something back. Let me give this some thought. Do the sensible thing, Thomas. A gift. Thomas? The gift of unconsciousness! <laughs> Security wagon! We should finish him. <laughs> we have finished him. He won't survive a night in Sherwood Forest. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.